Welcome to Simply Christian, a podcast diving deep into the essentials of the Christian faith, heresies, and everything in between. I'm Isaac. And I'm John. Dude. Bro. Man, are you ready? I don't I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready either. Listeners, I hope you're ready. You got your oven mitt on? <laughs> got both of them on, man. All right, dude. <laughs> we do. We have a hot subject on our hands for you listeners today, um, and so I hope that you guys are geared up for something that... Um, sometimes causes a lot of heat, even in the church, but we're hoping that we can um, use that friction to cause some light because we think the Bible has a whole lot to say on this subject. Um, And so the question for this episode is this, does the Bible teach a difference between men and women? And even more specifically beyond that, does God give unique responsibilities and roles to men than he does to women and vice versa? So basically, can women be pastors and preach in the church? Right? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what yeah. this boils down to. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and has implications on so many other things. Um, but ultimately, that's sometimes the driving issue when the subject comes up is, look, I just want to know, can a woman be behind the pulpit? I got a woman pastor. What's up with that? Is that fine or is that not fine? Um, but we're going to touch on that specific issue and as well as all of the other root systems that this um, biblical subject touches on because it touches on so many things. It goes right back to the Genesis and has implications on all aspects of life. It gets really to our core as human beings and our identity, how God has made us, um, and implications therein. So what do you think as far as we got to start this off the right way? Our podcast always talks about the level of triage, and we've been calling it quadrage, and I've even heard some <laughs> listeners even picking up on that term. Oh, no. So we've kind of coined that. I like it. Um, we have level one is the big subjects that are going to divide the divide. We're going to say you're not even a Christian if you don't believe this properly. Level two is all right. We might consider you a Christian, but we're not going to be able to do fellowship and worship together. Level three is all right. We can do it on a church level. We can disagree here, but our elders probably should be in agreement on this issue. Level four is something that we might differ in opinions on, and even the elders might, but it doesn't really have that great of an impact on a day to day. Uh, worship within a uh, a community of believers. Hmm. Where would you put this issue of um, men and women and roles in the church, roles in the home? How would you identify this, Isaac? Yes, I would say it's a level two. So instead of the sword, the level one sword, maybe bring out the boxing gloves. You know, it's a little more mild. You know, (laughs) you can kind of be in-house with that still. I agree. I agree. And then you, um, it might be something that I can go and um, have a Bible study or have coffee with um, you know somebody who disagrees. But if I am going to be in a church setting and a woman rises up and begins to preach and she's the pastor, or or if she's in a church where women are not allowed to preach, it might be difficult for us to worship together on a regular basis on Sunday mm. after Sunday after Sunday when me listening to a woman preach when I believe the Word of God expressly says that should not happen. Or if she thinks women should preach, and why aren't you letting them? That's going to make worship together difficult. But we can still look at each other and say, you're a believer, I'm a believer. But it's going to be difficult to worship together. Is that kind of what you're driving at? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Same. Yeah, man. Yeah. I agree. So we should probably let the cat out of the back. Actually, I should. we already did that in episode two when we were talking about theological triage. Yeah, we did. We did. But, but let's just, for those people who didn't listen, mm-hmm. what do we believe about this? Well, we believe that the Bible teaches um, very clearly. So not even possibly, I would say, come right out front and say that the Bible teaches expressly, very clearly, um, 
and leaves no room for doubt, uh, what we would call complementarianism. Um, and that's a big word, but it's a, the word means basically that men and women complement each other, yet there is a difference and a distinction that God gives a distinct, distinct qualities, callings, responsibilities, and roles to men that he does from women, and he also gives unique callings, qualities, roles, and responsibilities to women that he does not give to men. But these two, even though they're distinct, one is not superior to the other, one is not inferior to the other, but they both, when they come together, make this beautiful thing that complements each other. And when we say that, we don't mean compliment like, hey, you look beautiful. Oh, no, you look really great. That's compliment with an I, complementarianism. Uh, complementarianism is actually when we compliment, like peanut butter and jelly, they complement each other. Um, root beer floats, you know, you got the root beer and the ice cream. They're different, but they complement each other. They go well together is basically what we're saying when we say complementarianism. Um and so how, have you heard the opposite term? What's what's on the other end of the table with complementarianism? What would be the, the term for the other side? Well, I hope so. We're, we started the podcast already. I hope I know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So on the other end of the spectrum there is what's commonly called egalitarianism, which basically means in this view, though there are some variations, that men and women have an equality in function role, and there's no difference and what God expects them or calls them to do. Mm, right. Yes. And so um, some some would use this term um, outside of the church and just say, I'm an egalitarian. I want equal equality. Um, the word egal, I guess, is as a Latin root, which ultimately just means equality. Um, but some people would say, you know, we want everybody to be equal. And there's a whole lot of truth in that. I want to be somebody who wants equal rights and all of these things, and I can champion that alongside them. But what comes part and parcel with that is that there is really no distinction at all when it comes to um, societal values, societal functions, societal roles, all of these things. Um, a man can do everything that a woman can do and should, and a woman can do everything that a man can do and should, and there really is no difference um, between a man and a woman. Uh, well, we would hold from a complementarian side that, yes, there's equality, but also there is distinction, that there is a little bit of a difference between a man and a woman um, that God has ordained from the very beginning of time in, in Genesis. Yeah, and I just think that's, it's just, I mean, obviously, maybe a little bias here, but I just think it makes the most sense because it doesn't, like, broad brush anything. Mm. Like, we're not just saying, no, only men you know, all the way through and women are just lucky to be around. Mm -hmm. We're also not saying, um, yeah, everything's exactly the same because mm -hmm. those are just really easy broad brushes. Like yeah. I think our view, um, although there are some distinctions between some, some differing opinions within complementarianism, generally it's a I, I find a little bit more carefully thought out as far as understanding like, okay, yeah, there's equality, but there's also distinctions. And then it's just a little bit more complex. And I think that just reflects the nature of life, mm -hmm. which is a lot more complex than it is simple. Absolutely. So. Right. Yep. Yep. And it allows for some room for some nuance. Um, while we hold, to, again, we hold to equality in the complementarian viewpoint, we also hold to some nuance where God definitely does make some differing um, qualities between men and women. And so what we're going to do in this episode we can just give you a table of contents going forward. What we're going to do is um, we'll explain what complementarian complementarianism is, 
based on scripture. And we'll look at some scriptures and why we have come to an understanding that the Bible teaches complementarity in the Bible. We'll also look at what complementarianism is not based on scripture. So there's a whole host of things that some people have rejected complementarianism for, abuse, um, misogyny, um, and all of these really atrocious things that we would also stand against as well. So we want to talk Mm -hmm. about what complementarianism is not in the Bible. Um, Then we'll talk about how this works out practically. What does this look like in the church when men and women are um, unified together, worshiping the same Lord Jesus Christ? How can we interact, um, picking up our various roles and responsibilities and callings and qualities in the world, um, also in the church and also in the home? And then finally, we're going to answer some common objections. So I hope you'll stay to the very end because there are a whole lot of people who are maybe listening to this podcast and they're going to be like, I'm jotting down all of my objections. We might cover some of your very objections in this podcast, and we want to really look and take an honest look at what the other side will say to some of what we have presented in this episode. And we'll try to answer those common objections to the complementarian viewpoint and just try to make a final case for why this is what the Bible teaches and why we need to live by this. Mm-hmm. That's good, man. That's good. Cool. So uh, why don't we get started then? Um, so how is complementarianism framed out in Scripture? Where do we see this complementarity between men and women? Yeah. I mean, this goes right back to the very beginning, and we have several scriptures, and so I hope you guys have your Bibles out, maybe pen and paper, jot some things down, but just to go right back to the beginning, uh, most things, if not everything in scripture, has its roots right in Genesis, and we can go right back there, right back to the garden, right before sin um, even entered into the world. And if you look at Genesis chapter 1, God created the male and female, made them both in his image, Um, but then you get into chapter 2 where it kind of gives a little bit more specifics on the day 6 creation narrative. Um, And if you pick up in verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. That word suitable is like a a corresponding strength that is just uh, the other side of the mountain. You know, you got one side of the mountain that's just front facing. It's bold. It's there. But uh, there's a whole other side of the mountain that is a corresponding strength to that mighty mountain. Um, and that one is not indistinguishable uh, from the other. But then the word that I really want to focus in on here is helper. And the Hebrew word here is ezer, E-Z-E-R. And you, you see it in different names in the Bible. Eliezer means God is my helper. Um, ezer is a good thing. Um, psalm chapter 54, um, verse 4, um, the writer of that psalm says, God is my helper. So this term is a very lofty term. God even himself takes on this term, Azer, and says, I'm your helper, speaking to humans. So it doesn't mean anything of inferiority, but what it does mean right from the beginning is that God has has made Adam first, and now he is creating woman for man. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he, he fleshes this all out and he goes through and he says, man was not created for woman, but woman was created for man to be this corresponding strength this upholding strength um, that, again, is not inferior, but is very much a supportive role to come alongside the man and to make sure that he is living, leading in a God-honoring and respectable way. And so right from the beginning, before sin enters into the world, we see this pattern put into practice right from the get-go. And again, it gets elaborated and expounded upon as we'll look at some more scriptures. Yeah. Um, And so let me 
toss a toss a ball up for you here, brother. Like, um, how do we see this kind of carried out in the rest of Scripture? I mean, we know that the New Testament talks a whole lot about it. Um, yeah. Home, the church. How would you uh, frame this out? Uh, yeah. So I think one of the best places to go where it's um, super clear as far as kind of some distinctions is Ephesians 5. So I'll read that for you here. <clears throat> this is what it says. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. And it goes on um, in a little bit more detail here, down in verse 28. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So right there, we just see we see the um, the beauty of both men and women being upheld. There, we see the particularly a husband and wife relationship. But we do see that there's distinctions between what God calls the man and the woman to do in the relationship of marriage. Mm-hmm. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands aren't called to submit to their wives. But we see a greater level of sacrifice being called to for the man mm. versus the wife. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there is like to a certain extent levels of submission and sacrifice on both ends. But the general responsibility of the man is to to love and lead and sacrifice through doing that, mm-hmm. and the wife is to submit um, in love and, of course, that. That'll get into what we talk about later. Is isn't submit a bad word? But it <laughs> yeah. basically, you know, just kind of follow, just help. Mm-hmm. You know, come mm-hmm. alongside the leadership of her loving husband. Right. And that was uh, a practical example too. Is I just um, I've been sitting down with some people that may or may not. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but um, at some point. I could have been sitting across the table from a future son-in-law, um, people who are beginning to express interest in my my daughters, um, and so I've been having to have some of these conversations as a dad to my to my growing young uh, female daughters um, who are kind of growing into some young women. Um, but as I sit down with them, um, going through Ephesians chapter five, and I say, "Look, um, I'll go over Ephesians chapter five verses twenty-two through twenty-three with my daughters," and we have talking about submission. Um, submit yourselves to your husband, your own husband, um, just as the church submits to Christ. Um, and so that's going to be something that she needs to be discipled in and grow in and learn about. But here, as I'm sitting across from you, if you are somebody who is expressing interest in my daughter, wanting to um, pursue something that could ultimately lead in a marriage, um, what I what I want to cast a vision for you for, young man. Um, wanting to court my daughter is I want you to understand the great calling that it is to be a man and and specifically a husband that right. if one of them if one of you has to die it's going to be you yep it's not the That's wife good. 
Christ is not having the church die for him. He lays his life down for the church. Um, we get just this beautiful tenderness that Jesus expresses in laying his example down for all men to, to pick up and say, all right, how Christ loves the church, that's how I'm going to love my wife. I'm not going to use this as a means to exact various things from her, this authority, this headship. But what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to use this um, authority and headship as an opportunity to love my wife, to serve her with everything I've got. If we're out and she's cold and I got a jacket, I'm going to be the one that's cold. You know, if uh, I got an extra, my pair of gloves, she doesn't, she's got my gloves. I'm going to be the one that's cold. I'm going to wash over her. I'm going to nourish her. I'm going to, um, one of the things that we went over is LLPP. You love, you lead, you provide, and you protect. That's good. Um, those are the callings of a man, of a man and a God honoring man will be a, a glorious husband to his wife, um, mirroring the way that Jesus perfectly loves his bride, the church. It's a beautiful thing. Dude. That's good. And you know, that means practically, uh, like for, for me and my wife, what comes up often is, you know, we'll be sitting in bed and this is just a small practical example, but you know, it, it works We're sitting <laughs> in bed, and she's like, I forgot my water bottle downstairs. Mm. And I'm like, I forgot my water bottle downstairs too. So who's going to go get it? Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm going to follow this, it's like, Neither of us want to get out of bed, right? <laughs> yeah. But as the man, I'm supposed to sacrifice. Mm, mm-hmm. And I know that's kind of a silly example, but I mean, yeah. uh, even in the small things, I mean, I think like, I don't know, I obviously the laziness creeps in, but then at the same time, like the spirit's like, no, man, like, mm-hmm. I don't know that he says man, but he's like, no, <laughs> he's like, no, nah, man, yeah. you, you get up and you go do that because mm-hmm. you're sacrificing like Christ would do that for his church, right? So, Amen. Yeah. You know? Yep. And then on just an, another quick note, and actually let's we'll, we'll look at Colossians 3, um, which is a an exact passage um in relation to Ephesians 5. It's just narrowed down a little bit and it doesn't come with a, a lot of the elaboration that comes in Ephesians, but it's worth looking at uh Colossians chapter 3 starting in verse 18. It'll sound identical, but just bear with me. It says, "Wives, be subject to your own, to your husbands." As is fitting in the Lord, husbands love your wives and do not be embittered against them. And so we have this idea again that just Paul kind of narrowly explains um, what he's fleshed out more in detail in Ephesians, but he says the exact same thing. Wives, subject yourselves to your husbands and husbands love your wives. Do not be embittered against them. Do not treat them poorly, but don't be ashamed either to rise up and take the lead. You know, I think in our culture today, a lot of men are being stripped and feeling embarrassed or ashamed of the the calling to rise up and lead. And they feel as though by just a sheer act of doing so is an act of misogyny and a kind of detriment to women. But I think it's a glorious thing to rise up and to say to my wife, here's a direction that I feel like we should go. And I want to hear your perspective and I want to know what your thoughts are. But I, as the man, I'm happily wanting to 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 lead you in a god honoring um direction but not only you but my children as well and so i don't want to be ashamed as a man to rise up and take the lead um all the while i know that a good husband's going to listen to his wife and, and heed her counsel as his corresponding strength as we learned in genesis um but at the end of the day um leadership is is something that we need to rise up and not be embarrassed to yes. take the reins on as men absolutely completely agree man completely agree 
Um, well, another passage. Let's just, because um, right now we are in the home category um, with roles of men and women in the home. And we looked at Ephesians chapter five. We looked at Colossians chapter three. Let's just look real quickly at First uh, Peter chapter three. And if this sounds redundant, just know that it, it kind of is. The Bible bends over backwards to say a lot of the same things. There are certain things in the Bible that we only see once, twice, a couple of times. In Scripture, this um, distinction, um, these roles of men and women, qualities, um, responsibilities, callings, we see these things repeated multiple times. The, mm-hmm. the Bible goes to great lengths to say some of these things that you're like, you already said that. But we're going to read it just to show that this is not something that just kind of shows up once or twice. This, this is a repeated thing, re- re- repeated refrain in the Bible. So 1 Peter chapter 3 says this, um, starting in verse 1, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectable behavior. And so the beautiful thing here is that the woman's submissiveness can actually lead to the honor of her husband, who in this case and scenario might not, not even be a believer. But you are, a, as a Christian wife, even if you have an unbelieving husband and he is somebody who is you know, not living in accord with the word of God, still submitting to that man as your, as your leader as your provider, as your protector, as the one who you're going to give honor to. And I think of Daniel when he has, um, I think it's King Belteshazzar, throw him in the lion's den because he did not, he prayed to God. After a night in the lion's den, when the king comes over and opens up the lid and says, Daniel, are you still alive? Did your God save you? Daniel's first response was, oh, king, live forever. Yeah, a beautiful thing. Instead of just being like, "You're an awful king. You're wicked. I, I would, I'd rule this nation way better than you would." I don't know what you're thinking. All these things that he could have said and been correct in, he actually still submitted to this wicked man. And I, I see just a perfect mirror image of that here, where a wife might know way more about the Bible than her husband, might be so more gifted um, in teaching and on all of these things, and actually have the ability to make wiser decisions, but she still says, I'm going to submit to my husband. I'm going to honor this man. I'm going to lift him up. Even though I could do what he should be doing better than he can, that's not my role. I'm not in that seat. So I'm going to lift him up and give him the honor that he deserves. And this is that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. It's a beautiful passage. And if you, we don't have to cover it here, but Reading on, it goes on, and it talks about how women ought to adorn themselves. And then it speaks about how husbands, in the same way, live with your wives, with an understanding way. Um, and so it's just a beautiful passage, um, another one to look at. But we're just mm-hmm. trying to pile up passages just to show this is, this is a repeated refrain, very important uh, when it comes to um, roles and responsibilities, callings, um, and qualities in the home. Yeah. In the home. That's good, bro. That's good. And just so key to all of this is it... It just so beautifully pictures the gospel mm. in so many ways. Amen. And it's one of those, really the most unique human relationship that there is. And it, God instituted it. He instituted this relationship to picture the gospel, to picture his relationship with his people. Because mm. as we read in um, Ephesians earlier, Christ gave his life for the church. And that is our example as husbands mm-hmm. for loving our wives. 
and the church submits to Christ, and that's the example for wives to submit to their husbands. Yes, and it's just so it's so beautiful because there's it's all like there's so much love there with different roles, but there's equality and equality and value, mm-hmm. but not in not in role. Yes, you know. Yes. So, yep. amen. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's just it's really really beautiful. I think absolutely. And just one one more to just throw in for you readers to write down, um, just for the sake of time, we won't cover it here, but Titus chapter 2, um, if you read from verses 1 down to maybe verse 5 or 6, um, you'll see some uh, callings of women to really be keepers of the house, the primary child rearers, keepers of the home while the husband is out providing, earning money. Um, so he doesn't have to worry about the fact that the house is falling apart because the, the wife's like, I got this. And in the same way, the woman doesn't have to worry about where's our next meal coming from. The husband's like, I got this. I'm providing. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I'm keeping the home. We're corresponding strengths. And we're both holding down various aspects. That's good. Um, Something, a a beautiful thing to think about. But now let's let's transition to the church. We've talked about how the qualities, callings, roles, and responsibilities of men and women in the home when it comes to marriage in particular. How does this play out in the church? What does the Bible have to say about... um, yeah, what, what's a man's responsibility in the church? What's a woman's responsibility in the church? Where would we go for passages uh, to look for insight on this? Yeah, so I think one of the first ones to start is one of the pastoral epistles, mm-hmm. which is uh, the best one to go to for this, I think, is First Timothy 2. Mm-hmm. So uh, here's a little blurb from that. It's a couple verses. Um, this is First Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as as is proper for women who profess to worship God. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For... Adam was formed first, then Eve, Mm. and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. Amen. Yeah. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. But I think what's important on the front end, just to remind our listeners, this is in the context of the local church, Mm -hmm. right? right? So when it says that a woman is to learn quietly in full submission, and I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. This is specifically in the context of the local church. Mm-hmm. What this is not saying is that in every context outside of the local church, a woman has to submit mm-hmm. to a man. Yeah, right. And that they can't teach, right? Mm-hmm. This is in the context of the local church. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yeah. And, and just a, a, a clarification or um, a proof to support what you just said, if you go to... First Timothy three fifteen um, or fourteen and fifteen. It says Paul says, "I am writing these things. The reason I'm writing you this this book, Timothy, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before leaving. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, mm. the pillar and support of the truth." And so this is Paul's thesis statement that he puts in chapter 3, right in the middle of the book, to say, here's why I'm writing this letter of First Timothy that we know of today. First Timothy is written so that the church ought to know how we we should behave. And so he's 
comes right out in chapter two and says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Where is teaching and exercising of authority ever more present in the local church than the position of elder? Um, And so we believe wholeheartedly that the position of elder is something that is reserved for a man. Um, And Paul, even if you are interested in it, lays out a couple of reasons why. If you were to say, why can't a woman teach or exercise authority over a man? Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 2, here's why. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And so he puts a, a, a weight of his argument based on Genesis where Adam is created first. If God wanted to, he could have created Eve first, but he chose to create Adam first. And so he says something that there's something about priority. Who comes first actually is a intentional decision of God. And for that reason, that's an evidence. But he doesn't even stop there. Verse 14, he says, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And so he in some ways, it's kind of given a backhanded slap to Adam and says, Adam, you weren't even deceived when you took the fruit. You knew yeah. better. Eve, yeah. you were deceived, and that's not really as much your fault. Sin entered in the world, not through Eve, but through Adam yeah. as the head, and he willingly took of the fruit. He knew better. He was right there when his wife was eating it and didn't mm-hmm. say anything, Yeah, cowered down and do, didn't do anything. Um, where she was deceived, but he also still says, a woman ought not to have a position of elder in the church because there is a deception that happened with Eve, that didn't happen with Adam, and he put some weight and some stock in that. Yeah. And some of this is not popular in today's culture, especially with feminism and um, egalitarianism kind of sweeping through our country, um, and then especially in the Western church. But particularly, um, some of these things we know are not popular, um, and we're going to get to some of those objections in a little bit, but I just, we're, we're still framing up our position um, of how men and women ought to react, uh, relate to one another in the home, and now we're speaking about the church. Cool. That's good, man. Uh, yeah, so uh, another couple passages that you could go to, you know, 1 Corinthians is really good, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are good, dealing with the church. But um, let's let's get into what complementarianism is not, because mm-hmm. there's a lot, you know, when we use words like these, can stir up a lot of emotions depending on your experience. So it'd probably be good to clarify what we're not saying we believe. I agree. And just to give a quick testimony here, um, I've experienced this. Um, I had to kind of came out <laughs> in a sense um, as being a complementarian in a church that I was at years ago. Um, and there was such incredible backlash and hurt and harmed relationships as people discovered somebody that they had been worshiping with for years came out and said, I'm complimentarian. And all of a sudden, without any real discussion, there was a lot of pain involved. And I think it comes from what you just said, where there's a lot of baggage that goes with this. Some people have been in complimentarian churches that you and I, if we walked into them, we would say, this is horrible. You men are actually really mistreating women. Um, and so I think a lot of people have grown up in a, in a bad experience of a complementarian church to the point where they're saying, if I, if I see somebody who's a complementarian, I'm basically putting my old pastor's face on your face now, and yeah. you represent everything that he represented, and I reject everything that you're saying because I've seen it so misused in the past. And so I think it's good. We should clarify what complementarianism is not, 
and some things that we would also stand against when some people have used or misused um, this teaching of Scripture. The ironic thing is that when complementarianism is abused by people who claim the title, the ironic thing is they're actually being inconsistent Mm -hmm. with what they say they believe. Because Mm -hmm. if we believe in complementarianism based on Scripture, we just read the passages that talk about men leading with love. Mm -hmm. right? So if you're abusive, you're not a complementarian. You are a practical heretic. Mm-hmm. That's what you are. Yeah, you yeah. are. Yep. So, right. anyways, that is right. Good. Yeah, that's a good axe to grind. Real quick, I think we got to speak into that and speak very sharply um, against people who misuse a complementarian mindset because yeah, they're they're not even true complementarians. Yeah, they're just degrading to women. Exactly. Um, yeah. So one thing that this is not a uh, a prohibition against. We talked about women keeping the home, um, rising up and saying, it is not a secondary thing for me to raise children, keep the home and say, I got the home. You go out, be the primary provider, the earn, the, the, the one who earns wages. You go out, husband, I got the home. And so some people might say, well, okay, so a dad just has a pass and never having to change a diaper, never being invested in his ch- children's lives because the woman's supposed to have the home. That's not what we're saying at all. We actually believe just quite the opposite, that a man should be very invested mm. in the child rearing um, and home and home keeping. Um, very, very much invested while not shirking <clears throat> and laying aside his duties and responsibilities to be the primary um, provider of the home. But just a passage that I would look at is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so right after giving the Shema, um, the hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Um and he says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now in verse 6, though, he speaks this and he says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk about them when you sit in your house, and when you walk on the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And he's given this testimony to the, to the parents to say, teach your children. And I would say this very much applies if not equally, but maybe even primarily to dads. You take an active role in your children's lives. You spend time with them. You make sure that they're being instructed in the way. You are a bedrock figure in the home, somebody who's not just absent and departed from the family, obsessed with work, um, never around for your children, but you actually are invested. and You are there. Your wife knows you are there. Your children know you are there. And so this is a, a grand scale teaching where Men are to take a very active role in the child-rearing process, um, even though the woman is the primary caregiver in that regard. Um, And so, yeah, this is not a prohibition against that. Um, Yeah, what else is this not a prohibition against? Yeah, so it's also not a prohibition against um, men, like, helping out with, like, cooking cleaning and laundry, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's still it's still good for men to do those things. Absolutely. Yeah, and I just think of like in uh, we don't have to look at it but 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul has Paul's arguing for his authority. He's like I'm an apostle. Um but at the same time, I have served and I've worked and you know my work ethic and even though I'm an apostle and I could have really just come in and just done the teaching aspect, he said I got my hands dirty. So same thing with a man in the, in the home, a husband is to, yeah, I'm, I'm, man, we got five kids. We got one on the way. I better be helping with laundry because we're going to be swimming in it. I'm changing diapers, you know, cooking dinner, doing dishes, things like that. When I get home, 
I put on my at home hat <laughs> and yeah. I and I get get my hands dirty. Um, so absolutely, yep. And we've already touched on how this is not an excuse to abuse your wife as well. Um, and just kind of in that vein, quickly, this is also not a prohibition against women working. You know, mm -hmm. um, I believe a woman could have a job. Right. Um, my wife does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, go out, earn some money. Proverbs 31 talks about a, a, a godly woman. You know, she's out in the marketplace. You know, she's doing business. Um, and so this is a great thing for a woman to be able to work. And so some people think like, you know, the complementarian mindset wants women just home barefoot and pregnant, you know, in the house. <laughs> but it's like, in, in, on one sense, it's a, it's the highest calling, I believe. And I've, and many women would stand beside me. This is not just a couple men saying this. This is right. many women would say the highest calling I can have as a woman is to be a mom and a housekeeper. Highest calling, greatest thing in the world is so, so much better than being um, stressed out trying to have multiple jobs while our kids are off to daycare and all of these things. It's, I'm invested. I'm the mother. I'm raising human beings into the glory of God. But you know, yeah, you can go out and get get a job, earn some money. Sometimes a woman needs to get out of the house just to, to yeah. have some fresh air and Seriously. some time away. And some I can be somebody besides a mom. And so uh, we would very much advocate for a Proverbs 31 woman to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go out and earn some money, get out of the house. And husband's going to, you know, do some things at home. And yeah, 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 exactly. It's yeah, a beautiful it's, thing. It's, <laughs> I think a good way to look at it, like right now, practically, my wife and I are going through this because, you know, we've been married a little over two years now. We don't have any kids yet. Mm -hmm. We're both working full-time jobs. She's a nurse overnight. Mm -hmm. I work from home for State Farm. So right now, we both are bringing in income. She actually makes more than me as a nurse, which hopefully <laughs> yeah. she would. She spent four years in college doing this. So, uh -huh. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so we're both working, both bringing in income. But the way that this practically works out for us is I'm the one who handles the budgeting. I'm the one that handles like the big picture stuff that have to do with the um, the progress of our household, making mm -hmm. sure that financially we're good. And it's not because I like to be controlling. She wants me to do that. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I'm, I'm supposed to do that. You know, I'm supposed to be kind of responsible for that kind of stuff. Um, whereas my wife, she is a lot more on top of the things that happen internally inside of our household. Mm -hmm. Um with various things, but we both kind of share in that a little bit, but I lead in one area of the overall finances and she leads in the area of the like internal side to our household. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it does complement each other. Um, mm -hmm. and when we have kids someday, that's going to look different. Yeah. Um, yep. but you know, that it, it's just to, the reason I bring up that example is just to say like, it, this does not at all mean that the, the, the duties aren't split between mm -hmm. the two. It's the responsibility of ownership of those particular roles, mm -hmm. right? So, yep, yeah. And it evolves, it kind of morphs, it changes a little bit as, as, as families grow and children get involved and all that, yeah. So there's right. definitely not like a one-size-fits-all. And, and if I lose my job, yep. right, yep. and my wife's the only one working, that's not a sin, Yeah. right? That's not a sin. Mm -hmm. It's not ideal, Mm -hmm. But it's not a sin. Yeah. Like I can still fulfill my role as leading the household financially, yeah. um, and you know, obviously, at some point, I should get a job. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Yep. <laughs> yep. 
Um, a couple just quick things to throw into that, that what this is not a prohibition against is that complementarianism is not a prohibition against women doing ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, we believe that the call in Matthew 28 applies to all that go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That, that would apply to men and women, um, so that women should can be missionaries, um, go out and share the gospel um, yes. to... Uh, even prophesy, you know, we see women prophets, mm. prophetesses in the Bible. Um, uh, Philip's daughters, um, they were prophetesses. You know, First uh, Corinthians 11 talks about when a woman prays or prophesies, she's have her head covered, but at the end of the day, she's can prophesy. And so if a complementarian were to say a woman can do nothing ministry-wise, the gospel mm. should never be on her lips. She should never tell anybody, do anything even close to related to ministry. We would say that's that's not right. We would just limit it to the office of elder in the church is something off limits for a woman, just like um, maybe bearing children is off limits for a man. And <laughs> you know, and there's certain things that men cannot do either, even if we wanted to. Yeah, you know, um, and true. so so there's yeah there's certain things that are off the table for both sides. Um, and just uh, uh, and we've uh, hopefully we've already expressed this very clearly, but just one last thing that um, we want to put in the category of what this is complementarianism does not teach and again does not teach inferior inferiority or superiority of men or women neither are superior or inferior right. they're both equal in value equal in um uh, beauty and image bearers of god yes um and so just like a couple of examples you know a police officer a police officer if i meet a police officer on the street he has more authority than I do, but at the end of the day, we both have the same equal value. Um, his life is not worth more than mine, nor mine than his. But really how this will lay out practically is if my house is on fire, he's going to run in and save my life, and he will lay his life down for citizens. That's the right. duty of a police officer. So in really in practicality, in some senses, he's making my life worth more than his by being willing to lay his life down. And so it's picture is very similar with men and women that there might be a headship an authority that one has that the other doesn't but at the end of the day really how it's going to work out practically is that the woman is going to be the one that's lifted up even higher right that in a real sense egalitarianism while it wants to um level the playing field and and make things equal that and it's a lot of good in that that we'd want to get behind at the end of the day i think it does probably more detriment to women yes. because they are no longer being lifted up on this pedestal because yes. that's not allowed. You can't open a door for a woman and egalitarianism really because who are you to open the door for me? We're equal. You know, why, why shouldn't I open a door for you? You know, right. like, and um, so I think in some ways it does detriment to women because a and true complementary and men. Yeah. Men are Preach. called to, to, I will, I'll preach for a minute, <laughs> yeah. so Men, like just the example of the holding the door open, like, like God has, and I know this is true, like God has like in men given us this desire to save and protect and help women. Mm-hmm. He has. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just naturally the way it works. Like if you look at any like typical romance, like especially like Disney movies and stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, maybe the older ones, maybe the newer ones, probably <laughs> not so much, but the older ones yeah. and other things like there's always like, the the prince like the superhero or the you know whatever like the the guys coming to the rescue of the princess doesn't mean the princess can't like do anything herself usually she's pretty awesome and can kick some butt mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the point though is like men desire to help 
women and to do kind things for women. Um, and this, this actually helps our character. It does. Like if you see a young man holding the door open for women, mm. like if you teach him to do that, that's going to help him in so many other areas of life, mm-hmm. doing the same thing for women in other areas, mm-hmm. like treating them with respect in areas of sexuality and other things, mm-hmm. right? Just those little things. Yep. Like it's so important, so important mm-hmm. that, that men are allowed to elevate women in that way. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Amen. Yep. That's, that's wonderful. And so just a quick thing before we get into the common objections, just to, just to kind of recap, and I think a lot of this has already been expressed, but how this works out practically is that, yeah, men are called to rise up and love, lead, provide, and protect. And again, without being ashamed of doing so, without being embarrassed to do so, because if you're leading and loving and providing and protecting in a God-honoring way, there's nothing to be ashamed of there. That we're rising up to a leadership role. And again, we have so much chivalry chivalry that comes with this because it's a tender thing. True leadership is a very tender thing uh, involving much sacrifice. And then for women, it's submitting um, to their own husbands, not to any man in the world, but again, to their own husbands. The Bible makes it very clear. So and I can't just go up to any woman on the street and say, hey, will you you know, tie me, tie my shoe and you go get me a bagel and a cup of coffee. And they're just like, oh, I guess I got to do it. It's like you submit to your own husbands um, and yes. be a corresponding strength to him, knowing that this is not something to be ashamed of either. I'm going to take an active role and say, I got this home under control, when, especially when you have children. When they're single, you know, with no no kids involved, that's a, it's a different story. And again, it evolves and morphs uh, as the family grows. But with this, it's like, I am not going to be ashamed of the fact that I'm going to be uh, a corresponding strength to my husband and lift him up as the head of this home. And that's a beautiful thing uh, to see. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, just a quick uh, outline of how this practically works out. But we should get into these common objections. And if you guys have been waiting for this, this might be some of the most fun because I really I, I appreciate listening to debates. Um, and while we don't have the other side represented here, maybe in future episodes we'll be able to do more of a debate format. But right now we do want to give a little bit of um, honesty to what the other side will say. Um, some things that if you're listening and you're an egalitarian, you might be like, Psh, you guys are crazy. What about all these things that I jotted down? We might cover some of your objections to the complementarian viewpoint right here and we got several of them so let's just jump into it let's jump in dude all right first one first one yep <laughs> isn't submission an awful thing isn't that like <laughs> yeah the ultimate cuss word yeah submission. right yep it's like you know um yeah to a call to a, a wife to submit to her husband that's uh, you got to kind of cringe if you say that in society maybe look over your shoulder who's looking mm-hmm. you know you're in a coffee shop you're going to want to kind of whisper that under your breath because especially if you're at starbucks <laughs> it's, oh man oh, yeah so <laughs> it might poison your latte yeah it? yeah and so to say wives submit to your husbands isn't that a bad bad thing um absolutely not we believe that submission is a very very beautiful word um that even in ephesians 5 before it gets into wives sub- submit to your own husbands uh verse 21 says have mutual submission, um, mm-hmm. submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And so in a very real way, like um, the way I submit to my wife is by leading her. Um, I want to uphold her. And so submission is a beautiful thing, but we see this all through our life and there is no degrading value to it. We use the police officer example. If I get pulled over, I'm going to submit to that police officer. 
It doesn't mean anything negative to me. It doesn't mean he's domineering. It just means I'm going to honor this police officer as a public servant with a weapon who has authority and a badge to um, enforce the law. And so if I get pulled over, I'm going to submit to this man or woman, whoever it is that pulls me over and say, you are the one in authority here. Um, same with an employee. You know, I, we've all had jobs. My daughter works at a coffee shop <laughs> um, and uh, she can't go into the work and just say, hey, boss, um, here's what you're going to do today. And or, or let's just talk about what I'm going to do today as we're equals. We're equal in value, but in our roles right now, you're the one with the headship. You're the one with authority. And that submission, nobody complains against that. That's just part of our societal structure. Um, and also biblically, um, we see this. And so submission is a beautiful thing. Um, Christ oh, submitted himself unto death. Yes. Unto Christ. Yeah. Please <laughs> so, say that. Say, say that. The words yep. right out of your keep, keep going. Yeah. No, say that. Philippians yep. 2. Mm-hmm. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. When he came, when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Mm-hmm. Like you just see that all submission right there. He submitted mm-hmm. to the Father's will to come and to give himself as a ransom for many. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, Jesus is the ultimate example of submission. Yes. To the Father, who is equal. Yep. We already did the episode on the Trinity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's equal. Yep. He's equal. Yep. But his role as the Son Mm -hmm. is to submit to the Father, Mm -hmm. but that it's equal completely. His role was to submit. And it's just beautiful. You know? So beautiful. It's it's not a bad word. Yep. It's a good word. It's a good word. When rightly understood. When rightly understood and when rightly applied. Yes. Amen. Yes. Yes. Cool. So All what's right. our next one? So next one, what about Galatians 3.28? Mm-hmm. There's a group called um, CBE, um, and they've had, uh, they're one of the main egalitarian resources out there. If you do a Google search, you'll probably find them. They got a lot of videos, and you can learn a whole lot about egalitarianism from them. Um, And I don't wholesale reject them as non-believers. I actually would say that a host of them are true believers. I just think they've adopted some of a a feminist kind of mentality with with certain things. But this is kind of like the tagline verse that they use. Um, and many egalitarians use. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so the implication there is, so yeah, there's neither male nor female. So at the end of the day, we are free um, to have full equality. There should be no male or female. Who's going to be the one who's an elder? Who's going to take the lead in the home? Because there's neither male nor female is the common objection. Um, and many of you listeners, if you're probably wondering about Galatians 3.28, because it comes up a lot. Our argument to this would be um, that, yes, while it, it, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, this is in regards to salvation. That when it comes to a person's access to God, all are one in Christ Jesus, and none can say, I'm more of a child of Abraham than you, based on my ethnicity, based on my socioeconomic status, or based on my gender. All of these things do not prohibit me from entering into an equal status. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. Yet, though, we see clearly, as we've hopefully outlined very clearly, that there is a distinction when it comes to roles. Um, Because somebody could use this passage in the exact same way my daughter could go to her boss at work and say, 
there's neither slave nor free. So really, at the end of the day, there's neither employer nor employee. So who are you to tell me what to do, boss? Because I have Galatians 3.28 that completely undermines your authority and we are equals here. That's not what this passage is saying. It's not undermining us, uh, the social construct that God has given us to operate under from the beginning of creation. But he is outlining and saying that a man does not have any more of a superior place at the foot of the cross, at the foot of Jesus Christ than a woman, because both are equal and called equally to the presence of God through right Christ. On, man. That's good. That's good. All right, let's move on to the next one. Shouldn't spiritual gifting be the way to determine what roles we can take on rather than gender? 1 Corinthians 12. Yeah, and this is an argument that comes up um, fairly recently, uh, and um, there's a Discovering Biblical Equality. It's a huge book, but it does a whole thing on 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it kind of gives the outline of a saying, um, here's our spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you know, it's the chapter that says one person, we're not all one body part, we're a whole collective body. There's an eye, there's a hand, there's a foot, there's all of these different various parts, but it never mentions gender in there. And so when it comes to these spiritual gifting, shouldn't that be the determining quality that actually determines what roles we take rather than limiting it to our gender. The only problem with this is right before 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which clearly lays out a difference between men and women and what they can do in the context of the church. But not only that, it's also followed by 1 Corinthians 14. So 1 Corinthians 12 is really sandwiched in between two passages that really do delineate what a man and a woman can do in the church and what they ought to be, how they ought to be conducting themselves and presenting themselves. And so while I do agree that spiritual gifting comes into a great context here, that if a woman is given the gift of prophecy, I would say, amen, sister in Christ, you've got the gift of prophecy. You, you better go prophesy now and not let anybody stop you because the spirit has endowed you with this beautiful gift. The only thing is, is just do it in a context that is pleasing to the Lord. And so if you're going to prophesy, make sure it's according to Scripture mm. and being done in such a manner that the Scriptures outline. It's um, good. Yeah. Yep. Cool. That's tota scriptura, man. Tota. Not, yeah. Tota. All the Scripture. <laughs> All the Scripture. That's why we can't just pick one little verse or one little chapter and develop an entire theology on it. We need to take all the Bible, put it together, and and you know have a harmonized theology mm -hmm. one that doesn't contradict other passages yeah all right. right so what about deborah though uh in judges four and five deborah took leadership over israel as a judge mm -hmm. doesn't that mean women can be leaders in the church because israel and the church pretty similar right yeah <laughs> i heard uh one person arguing uh who we were, we were we were amicably debating and i think it was very um healthy christian dialogue she uh, was a female pastor, um, and we were discussing this issue, and she went right to judges, talked about Deborah, and she says, um, the position of judge was basically like president and pope all squeezed into one. Deborah is a judge, and you're going to say that a woman can't be an elder? My response is, no, Paul is the one that says woman, a woman can't be an elder. <laughs> but let's just you deal know, with judges, the, though. The inspired apostle. <laughs> yeah. But let's just deal with judges, though. If we look at it, ju Judges chapter 4 and 5, if you look, I want to argue, you will never see a place that it says God appoints Deborah as a judge. It just says she was a judge. Now, some people might quibble with that, but I, I want to really put a lot of emphasis on that. 
It doesn't say she was appointed by God as a judge. It just says she was in the same way that doesn't say Samson was appointed by God to do all of the wicked things that he did. He just did them. Judges is full of things that people did that were not um, sanctioned by God. God right. very polygamy. much polygamy, um, offering your daughter as a sacrifice, you know, uh, all of these, I mean, read through judges, you will find a host of things that God does not sanction, but happened. Yes. And so I'm going to argue God didn't appoint Deborah as a judge. Um, and if you read Gen, uh, judges chapter four and five, you will not see that God appointed her, but let's just assume for the sake of argument, God did. God appointed Deborah as a judge. And he says, I want her to be my president and Pope, you know, of Israel. Praise the Lord. God uh, allows women to be judges over Israel. That has no bearing in whether God has um, sanctioned or allowed women to be elders in the church. Where do we go to find that out? 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 3. That explicitly says women cannot be elders of a church. And so if we're going to look for what we're looking for, which is can a woman be an elder in a church, I'm not going to go to Judges chapter 4 and 5. That's where I'm going to find out what whole bunch of people did back in ancient Israel in a book that is filled with evil. <laughs> yes. I'm not going to really go from my New Testament theology of how the church ought to operate from Judges chapter 4 and 5. I'm going to go to 1 Timothy and lean a whole lot more on that. Um, so that's how I would respond to the what about Deborah question. Mm -hmm. um, it's a good one. Um, and we got we to gotta deal with what, what about Deborah, you know, um, this woman who seemed to judge better than most of the judges <laughs> um, oh, yeah, sure. in Israel. Um, but that would be the response uh, that I think is the, is the most adequate for dealing with uh, Deborah because she comes up a whole lot in this complementarian slash egalitarian discussion. Yeah, and even with like Queen Esther, right? Like, mm. you know, she, yeah. I think an important thing, just like distinction between Israel and the church, which hopefully is helpful. Like Israel, like, was a civil, like there's also like a civil aspect to it, right? Mm -hmm. The church is a kingdom, but in a different sense than Israel was. Israel was a kingdom working on earthly terms mm -hmm. in many ways, civilly speaking. And having leadership and like civilly speaking of a country where a woman is the leader, that's not necessarily wrong for mm -hmm. civilly speaking for that to happen because the roles that the scripture lays out is in the home and in the church. Mm -hmm. There are mm -hmm. these submission roles, right, mm -hmm. for women. Mm -hmm. um, but civilly speaking, like a woman can be a CEO of a company. Mm -hmm. A woman can be the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. She could. Mm -hmm. um, it's not as common for that to be the case just because naturally God has typically gifted men with more leadership mm -hmm. abilities, but that right. doesn't, it's not across the board mm -hmm. by any means. But I think that's just a helpful thing to point out. Like Israel is also a physical nation, civilly speaking, operating under civil, you know, yeah, civil things. So just because a woman is a leader civilly doesn't mean in the church, which is a spiritual kingdom, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is, works the same way. Yeah. So Amen. anyways. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. Well said. Well said. Um, another question is, uh, didn't Jesus uplift and elevate women, um, and liberate women. Um, why do, why are we talking about, um, this male kind of dominance, patriarchal kind of ancient barbaric mindset when Jesus 
really spent so much time uplifting women. Uh, Mary Magdalene, you know, first he first one to visibly see him or see him visibly risen from the dead to go tell others. He sent her out. Um, what are we what are we wasting our time talking about this for when Jesus is the great liberator of women? <laughs> yeah, well, he sure he is. Mm-hmm. Amen. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you, the New Testament does uplift women in a lot of ways. I mean, just the fact that um, that the Bible addresses women, that the first women, that the first people to see the risen Lord were women, and that was by God's providence. It wasn't an accident. God intended for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that was lifting up. This was the radical stuff of the day. Yeah. This was the radical stuff of the day. The culture at the time did not recognize women as important at all, mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. They were just seen as property. The New Testament doesn't treat them as property, teaches them as people who were made in the image of God and have just as much value as men, but with different roles. Mm-hmm. So what we need to realize is when we see these things in the New Testament about the roles of women and about how women are supposed to be loved by their husbands mm-hmm. and led and cared for, that is radical. That is radical compared to what the the culture was teaching. Mm-hmm. They would have thought that was crazy, like because women have no value apparently in that in that culture. Right. So yep. like people need to realize like, <laughs> yes, Jesus is the liberator of women in many mm-hmm. cases. Yes. But that doesn't mean that role distinctions are done away with. Mm-hmm. It means that value is clarified. Yes. Amen. Amen. Yep. Yep, we don't want to over-radicalize Jesus. He was radical, absolutely, but I think some people want to over-radicalize him and say he did uh, more more to radicalize a certain subject than he really actually did, and you end up reading more into the text than is even really there. Yeah. Yes, first century radical, maybe not 21st century radical in every <laughs> yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. That is right. Yep. <laughs> cool. Well, and how about um, Acts chapter 2, which is, you know, we get the quote from Joel chapter 2, um, but Joel gives a, a, a prophecy um, long before Christ um, and a prophecy that Peter picks up on and says, this is what Joel was talking about regarding the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 2, um, he says that, um, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, not just men, all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see vision, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. So what's up with you complementarians kind of trying to put shackles on women here? Very clearly, this is prophecy for men and women. It says it explicitly that men and women are going to prophesy. What are you guys doing? Yeah. So, yeah. Men and women can prophesy. <laughs> they they can. Like, no no objection to that. The scriptures clearly teach it. Like, that's okay. But that doesn't mean that role distinctions in the church are done away with. Mm-hmm. Because to say a woman can prophesy, can preach the gospel, can get a vision from God and proclaim it, doesn't mean a woman can be a pastor in a church. Mm-hmm. It's a non sequitur. Mm-hmm. They don't go together. When we yeah. have just it's this scripture is clear that women can prophesy. We have other scripture that's clear that yeah. only called and qualified men can be pastors. Yeah. So yeah. like we is the Bible contradicting itself? We don't believe so. No, yeah. that's not 
That's not what we believe at all as Christians. So if it doesn't contradict itself, it complements itself, mm. and therefore both are true and they're undistinct categories. Also, so. Yeah, yep, yeah. yep, yeah. And it would be equally as um, controversial for a complementarian to say, well, First Timothy 2 says a woman can't pray, uh, should um, be silent uh, in the church and learn with all quietness, and I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. So therefore, this passage in Acts chapter 2, we're just going to throw it out. It, does, it right. doesn't mean that an egalitarian would look at us and be like, no, you can't just sweep a passage under the rug for the sake of the other one. And right. so it's back what you said, toda scriptura, where it's, yeah, we're not going to throw First Timothy 2 out the window based on this. We're going to say, yeah, a woman can prophesy. Hallelujah. Thank God a woman can prophesy, share the gospel, go out and do many great things in the name of Jesus Christ. But we're not going to throw First Timothy 2 out the window on account of this passage. Yeah. Yep. So what about this one? Why would God be so mean and oppressive to women? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and we talked about this before we started recording. What a, a way to beg the question and just kind of assume something into this that isn't there. And um, we know that our God is just, our God is righteous, our God is holy, our God is wonderful. And when he does something, it is good and is always good. And um, we know from Scripture that it even has our best interests in mind. Romans eight twenty eight. 28, um, God causes all things to work together for good to those who uh, love him and who are called according to his purposes. And so God is... Um, in no way trying to be oppressive. In actuality, what God is trying to do is lay out a beautiful picture of the roles of men and women and how they more beautifully function in this capacity than in any other way. And when we try to make tweaks and alterations on how God does something, we're actually adding chains and shackles to us because God is the one who gives us truth. And Jesus, what does he say? truth will make you free and who the sun sets free is free indeed and so the truth is actually a liberating quality um the truth can be dangerous but it's also quite liberating um the world might not like it and so there's a danger that comes involved when you speak the truth to a culture that wants to say everything to the contrary but really at the end of the day truth is so liberating and so god is not oppressing women nor is he oppressing men by saying go out and be the primary caregiving uh, lovers leaders providers and protectors um because this is not a, uh, an oppressive mindset. There's actually one that says, this is how I have designed it, and I want you guys to live in this for your greatest flourishing, for your greatest um, care and concern that I have for you mm. as, as my children. That's good, man. Well, yeah. we got one more. All right. Isn't there a trajectory in Scripture where women grow in liberation? Yeah, and the idea behind this one is, you know, what um, women were basically, like you said, property. Um, Old Testament, you see this Abrahamic time, patriarchal society. Women are just seen as so valueless, which I would argue against. I think that even the Old Testament, in a proper understanding, upholds and uplifts women and protects them. Um, but the argument goes that as the New Testament progresses, we see Jesus elevating women, and then we see. Um, less and less uh, barriers and more and more protection for women. And so there's this per- trajectory, you know, it's it's rising. And so that by the time the New Testament is, is written, it's not quite where God wanted it to be yet, and that he's got this arc. And if you were to carry out the timeline and expand it past Scripture when the time of Scripture was written, you'd actually see it rising way beyond what Scripture actually had intended or written down in the New Testament. I just think that's a very dangerous thing to get involved in. When you start saying things like this, you can say the same about homosexuality. In the Old Testament, 
they were getting stoned. They were getting killed for homosexuality. In the New Testament, they're not getting killed. And I can I could say there's a trajectory there. In the Old Testament, they're getting stoned. In the New Testament, they're just being sent out of the church and not welcome into the fellowship based on their behavior and actions, their um, practical heresy. Um, but there's an arc there. And if God's got this trajectory going that 2,000 years later, we're just really going to have homosexuals welcomed into the church, active and outright homosexuality, can run rampant because there's a trajectory. It just opens up a whole can of worms. It also removes meat from our diet because it says in the Old Testament there was a bloody sacrificial system, tons of meat being eaten. But then in the New Testament, sacrifices are removed. And so there's a trajectory there again that I could extrapolate out and say God ultimately doesn't want you eating your lunch today. You got the turkey sandwich packed in your bag, throw it away because of the trajectory. It's a dangerous can of worms, and I think ultimately it's a, it's a shot at the sufficiency of Scripture to mm -hmm. say the New Testament um, is just pointing us towards something greater, which I would say the New Testament points us to Jesus Christ, and it's his final word for his church. The New right. Testament is complete, and there is no trajectory. It is actually the plateau and the summit of the Dude, mountain. That's what I was just going to say. And like, so, yep. <laughs> the new covenant that Jesus established by his blood is the ultimate pinnacle mm -hmm. of, of all of creation. As far as like right now, of course, when he returns, that's going to be just uh, the consummation of everything. But like the pinnacle of all human history is, is Christ while he was on earth and the new covenant that he set up. Mm -hmm. And there's no progression past that. There's progression in our depth of understanding, but not progression in the changing of the truth. Mm -hmm. It stays the same. It's there in the New Testament. Our job is to go back, dig deep, and try to understand what was there and what was taught, not try to change it and evolve what was being taught. Mm -hmm. So, Right. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Well, Ooh, we made it through it, man. Dude. That Hot was, topic. Yeah. I think some light was shine, though. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's all for today's episode. Consider subscribing for more Simply Christian content. And until next time.